Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are excited to hear the testimony that Chris shares that your church is doing well in Bolivia. <clears throat> it's excited to know, Lord, that your church is doing well in other places that we don't even know about. And so, Lord, this morning we want to pray for your church, the church of Jesus Christ, all over this world in areas this day where they're meeting publicly like we are meeting and in countries where they're meeting where they have to hide because they may be persecuted if found out. Father, we pray that your word will go out and that your word will affect people's hearts. We pray, Lord, for your church to rise up in countries where there are no churches, that your word will be established in those countries, that people will hear your gospel and believe and turn to you and live for you. Father, you are the only one who can do that, but I ask that you will use us, your vessels here on earth, to carry your message to those countries. Bring in us, make in us, Lord, a heart that is willing to go and to preach your gospel wherever you lead. I thank you, Lord, for our church. Thank you for the men and women in these several trips to Bolivia who were willing to lay down their lives and to go and to serve that country and those people. Lord, will you bless each person who went? And will you raise up more? Will you stir up more of us to go and to serve in that way? Thank you, Lord, for your mercy on our church. We pray as your word is preached now that you will bless it, that you will make it clear to us. Speak, Lord, speak to us and help us to understand and be affected and changed by your word. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. 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 In 1811, it was Spain. In 1813, Sweden. 1814, the Netherlands. 1819, Portugal. 1838, Britain. 1848, France. 1851, Brazil. 1865, USA. 1886, Cuba. And I'm not speaking about the Olympics and records. Those are the approximate dates in which slavery was abolished in each of those countries. Slavery has been part of humanity from the earliest of times. And in, in early second century, a man with the name of A.D. Florentines defined slavery as this, an institution of common law of people whereby someone, contrary to nature, is subject to the dominion and ownership of another. But the institution of slavery existed way back before even Greek and Roman times. The Mosaic law included regulations for slaves and masters. In fact, it was quite universal in that time. 
Slavery was and where it still exists is an abomination. Slaves were seen as property and often mistreated and received harsh punishment for disobedience. It is essential for us, though, to realize that slavery in ancient times, when we read about slaves in the Bible, was different than the more modern slavery, the slavery that you and I are more familiar with, like what was in the United States and some of these other countries that we read about. To those of us who live in countries where slavery has been abolished for one and a half centuries, it is hard to conceive how ownership of one human by another human could have been so widely accepted as a norm. And so I want to give you just four areas of slavery, how slavery in the ancient times, biblical times, were different than more modern slavery. First, skin color was not a factory in, in slavery. Modern slavery was racist to the core. But in biblical times, slavery was not racist at all. Slaves looked like any other man on the street. Secondly, freed persons, that's what the Bible call free men and women, freed persons could and often did sell themselves into slavery and could later re regain their freedom. It makes no sense to us when we think of slavery in the way that you and I know slavery and have learned in history books about slavery, but there were good reasons for some people to sell themselves into slavery. We need to realize that in that time, it was not easy to make a living. In fact, it was very difficult to make a living. And some people found it easier as a slave than as a freed person. Epictetus, a Greek philosopher born in 55 AD, reported that when he was a slave, he was provided food and clothes and shelter. And when he was sick, he was cared for. He said that these were benefits he did not have as a free person living in poverty. Of course, there are other ways of becoming a slave through inheritance, being born into it by purchase. If you could not settle a bad debt or prisoners of war often became slaves. Ancient slavery was different in that slaves often received training and education for specific jobs. In the first century, slaves worked in most sectors of society. Their occupation ranged from farmers to potters to miners and cooks to business people and accountants and teachers and even physicians. It is estimated that half of the population of Ephesus, the, the, the church that, where the church was that Paul is writing this letter to, half of the city of Ephesus were slaves. And so they occupied many of these occupations. Lastly, slaves had a real hope of one day becoming free, but even more than that, becoming citizens of Rome. So it was not uncommon for citizens to enter into a timed contract, not citizens, for people to enter into a timed contract, knowing that in a time they would be released from slavery and they would become a citizen. In some regards, slavery in biblical times were more closely related to servanthood, employees, workers. 
And you will see that difference when you, for instance, read the ESV Bible versus the King James or the American Standard Bible. The King James and American Standard Bible, the passage that we read this morning says, slaves. The ESV, which is a more modern translation, more literal translation, says bondservants. And so slaves were more closely related to servants in many aspects than slaves. Slaves were also seen as part of the household. And when we read in Colossians 3, when Paul writes a pretty similar passage than we see in Ephesians this morning, the heading of that passage says family relations. And then Paul goes on to speak about husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. So we see slavery in ancient time was much more of an economic and social class accepted by most people. It was a normal part of life. Still, there are very difficult questions to be answered about slavery even in biblical times. These elephant in the room type of questions. Why was there such an inadequate Christian response to such an abominable evil? Did the gospel offer no more radical solution to slavery than just an adjustment of personal relationships, which we're going to look at this morning? Why did they not speak out more boldly? Because surely Christian conscience must condemn slavery. John Stott in his amazing good commentary on Ephesians offers three possible reasons for answers to those types of questions have to realize this, these are not easy questions to answer. And often, as much as we attempt to answer those questions, they can seem somehow inadequate. But here's what John Stott says, why the Bible is not speaking out more boldly about slavery. First, Christians were an insignificant group in Roman Empire. Their Christian religion was itself unlawful at the time, and so they were politically powerless at the time. Furthermore, slavery was an indispensable part of the fabric of Roman society, and many cities had even more slaves living in those cities than there were free people in those cities. And therefore, it would have been impossible to completely abolish slavery without a complete disintegration of society. Ancient society was as economically dependent upon slaves as modern society is dependent on machine to function as a society. And even if Christian masters, all Christian masters released their slaves they would have condemned many of them to unemployment and a life of poverty. Second reason, he says, is that the change of legal status out of slavery and into liberty was a constant and easy process. Roman slaves were released in large numbers. There are, scores, there are times when scores of them, 500,000 at a time, were released. And not only were they released, but it was common practice for the Romans that when they released their slaves, that they would set them up in a trade or in a profession. 
So it was not uncommon for slaves to be freed. The third point is that at that time, the legal status of slaves was beginning to be eased and it showed signs of further improvement to come. More humane legislation was already being introduced in the empire at that time. And the gospel came alongside that to accelerate and ex extend this process. But John Stott ends by saying this. <clears throat> While we cannot defend the indolence or cowardice of two further Christian centuries which saw this social evil but failed to eradicate it, we can at the same time rejoice that the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution. It lit a fuse which at long last to the explosion which destroyed it. And this is what we see in many of Paul's writings. Though he did not specifically condemn slavery, it is clear that he was against human ownership by another human and he preferred all men to be free. Probably the clearest example of this is when we look at the book of Philemon. As Paul was a prisoner in Rome, he met a man with the name of Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave who belonged to Philemon, a runaway slave, punishable by death. And when Paul met him, Onesimus had converted to the Christian faith and he served Paul. The letter of Philemon is Paul's address to Philemon asking him to take Onesimus back into his service. In Philemon verse 10, it says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm, verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And then from verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. It is clear that Paul ask, is asking Philemon, without explicitly using those words, to receive Onesimus back as a free man and not as a slave. And so we see Paul's heart that was against slavery. Second proof is, is seen in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 21 where Paul says, Were you bondservants when called? Do not be condemned, concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He wanted men and women to be free. And then we see this remarkable account of Paul addressing slaves in the passage that we look at this morning. The simple fact that he does so in this passage and in the manner in which he is doing it indicates that he accepts slaves as members of the Christian community and that he regarded them as responsible people to whom he could make a moral appeal. And so although Paul does not launch a focused, explicit attack on slavery, we clearly see him undermining the roots of slavery in the New Testament. End of long introduction.
It is important, I think, for us to realize when we read these words, slaves, that we realize who this is written to. And I thought it important to set a basis for that. It brings us to our passage this morning in Ephesians 6 and verse 5 through 9. Over the last two weeks, we've seen Paul addressing Christian submission and what it should look like. And so we saw him addressing husbands and wives and the relationship there, and then children and parents and the relationship there. And then we come to this in the same passage, the next section, which is slaves or servants and their masters and the relationship between those. So again, there's two points, servants and masters. This is easy to work out a a schedule when there's servants and masters. Servants are called to be obedient to their masters in the same way that they are obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we dig into this passage and explore the principles that Paul is laying out for servants, we need to realize that these exact same principles that he is laying out for slaves and servants are also applicable to the contemporary Christian regarding our work or our employment and any other place where we are under authority. So whether you're a student or a housewife or a part-time worker or a full-time worker, you are called to be obedient to your superiors, to those God put in authority over you in the same way that he is explaining to slaves now how to be obedient to their masters. And this is how we see Paul explaining to servants, slaves, you will hear me using those two words interchangeably, servants, slaves, how he is explaining to them what it means to obey their masters. In verse 5, he says, with a sincere heart. In verse 6, he says, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. And in verse 7, he says, rendering service with good will. Paul is saying to these slaves, when you work for your masters, do so in sincerity of heart, in genuineness and in truth and in honesty. Do not work hard when your master is looking so that you can impress him. Don't be a people pleaser. Don't do this only for him to see you and when he's not looking, then slack off. When you work for your master, work as hard as you can out of the genuineness of your heart in all integrity because it is the right thing to do. Don't do this only for him to notice when you work hard. He continues to say more ways how servants are to be obedient to their masters. Again, verse 5, with fear and trembling. As you would obey Christ, verse 6, as servants of Christ, and verse 7, as to the Lord, not man. The words with fear and trembling sets up for us the deeper call to obedience that Paul is calling these servants to. 
Paul is not asking the Christian slaves to be obedient, uh, to be fearful of their masters or to tremble at their owners. The fear and the trembling Paul refers to here is a fear of the Lord and a trembling before a holy God. He, God, is our ultimate master, not this earthly master. And this fear he's talking about is not a cowering fear, but it is a fear of being in awe of a holy Savior. Matthew 10 verse 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Paul is saying to them, slaves, obey your masters because you are in awe of God, because you admire God, because you revere Him, because you respect Him, you esteem Him, you love Him. Because you love God, be obedient to your masters in fear and trembling for God. Because God is your ultimate master. 1 Peter 2 has a, another section of Scripture that looks exactly like what we read this morning in Ephesians and that we see in Colossians, speaking about slaves and masters. But it adds something there. It says in verse 18 of uh, 1 Peter 2, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. But then it adds this, Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And if it's not difficult enough to be obedient and subject to our earthly masters, Peter throws in there, even to the unjust. What an impossible call he calls on us. Servants, when your master mistreats you, when they treat you unjustly, when they are prejudiced against you, when they treat you unfair, unreasonable, and are blatantly mean to you, be subject to them, be obedient to them, not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake, because He is your master. And so let me ask you this morning, church, how are you doing in the area of being submissive and obedient to the authorities that God has placed over your life. Because you see, just as God has called these slaves to be obedient to their masters, God has called each one of us to be obedient to the authorities He placed over us. 1 Peter 2 again, verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to Every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So are you obeying those over you with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will for the Lord's sake? Are you submitted to your boss, your coach, your professor, to every human institution with fear and trembling as you would obey Christ? And how are you doing when you are mistreated, unjustly discriminated against, overlooked, overworked, and under-evaluated? 
How are you doing in this? This church is your and my call. This is, the, this is how God chose for us to serve Him and to show Him to the world that when we suffer in those areas and we look to Him, we can glorify Him. And so for those of you who are just rolled your eyes at me going like, yeah, you obviously don't know my boss. I want to tell you this is possible. I work full time for a boss also, I know. But it is possible. It is possible because God never asks of you and of me anything that he is not willing to empower us to do what he asks us to do. And you know when he empowers us? He empowers us when we humbly go before him and said, Lord, what you call me to do, I, Josh, cannot do that. I am sinful. I struggle. But Lord, you can empower me. Will you empower me when I'm treated unjustly, when I am overlooked, when I'm discriminated against? Will you give me the power to be obedient and respectful? And He will do this for you. But it takes a lot of humility for us to go to the Lord and ask Him for that. The bigger question is why? Why do I have to do this, Josh? I can just hear somebody jumping up and go like, Josh, you tell me why. Why do I have to be the good guy if my boss is a jerk? Why do I have to be obedient? First Peter gives us two very good answers for why. First, he says it is a gracious thing when we do this. Verse 19 again, 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It is a gracious thing. It means that when we suffer under the hand of an unjust boss, an unjust master, like the slaves suffered at the hands of their unjust masters, and we endure that suffering, we honor God. Why? Because of those three little words in the middle of that sentence, mindful of God. Her church, what a difference it makes when we encounter difficulties and challenges, when we have to submit to an unjust boss and we are mindful of God in the midst of those troubles. You know what it means? It means that while I am suffering, while I am suffering, I choose not to act like a victim, always complaining, always feeling sorry for myself, always drawing attention to my circumstances, always resisting those in authority over me, but I choose to look to Christ, my rock and my fortress and my redeemer, to the one who says he will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him. Trusting that this difficulty I suffer under this unjust master is God's good plan for my life. This is one of the most difficult things for us as humans to believe. But I have to tell you, God is a sovereign God, church, whose plans for us are good. And they don't most, not, not most, oftentimes they don't look the way we want them to look. But His plans for us are good plans. The Bible is full of examples. You can look at Joseph's life. You can look at Job's life. 
and how it looked so terrible what is happening to them. And then later it is revealed how God's sovereign plan for them was an amazingly good plan. Know this, that the same way that God drew boundaries around Job, God drew, draws boundaries around each one of you. And as you suffer under the hand of an unjust boss or as you suffer for any other circumstance, there is a sovereign good father that is right there with you. And He will protect you. And as you look to Him when you are mindful of God, all of a sudden it becomes possible to endure. When you and I are mindful of Him in the midst of troubles, this will not come naturally. It will take a fight to do this. Peter says it is a gracious thing. If you struggle under such a master, I have no better counsel for you. Be mindful of God. Trust Him. He is good to you. Humble yourself before Him and trust that His plan for your life is a good plan. Maybe a hard plan, but it is a good plan. Peter offers a second answer to why we have to submit to these unjust masters. And his answer is this, because Christ is our example to follow. Second Peter, in verse 18, we just said, it says, Be subject to you, masters, even the unjust ones. And then we see, going from verse 21, this amazing section of Scripture. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What more can I say when you and I were straying like sheep, when we were separated from God, when we were his enemies and we hated him? He bore our sins in His body on the cross. He suffered for us as an example for us. Christian, if you were a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God, according to Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, 
you are still spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. But here is the good news. If you trust Christ's work on the cross, acknowledge your sin before a holy God, repent of your sin and ask Him to forgive you, He will save you and make you alive together with Christ. What good news. What good news that He did this for us. Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins, your sins and my sins. The best news ever. Church, He suffered injustice like nobody ever had suffered injustice. He was reviled more. He was and is hated more. He was disrespected more. Yet, without sin, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What an example to you and me when tomorrow we work into, walk into the workplace and we suffer injustice and know that we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. This earthly boss is not going to be your judge, but there is a, a fair judge, one who judges justly, and we can entrust ourselves to him. Jesus expects nothing of us that he was not willing and able to do himself. And so we see his example for us when he suffered unjustly, yet entrusted himself to a faithful father. When we struggle, we have a choice. We can revile back, we can threaten, we can rebel, or we can be mindful of God and trust ourselves to Him who judges justly. And when we do that in humility, He will give us the power to obey and to do what He asks us and to serve our masters, to serve those in authority over us the way he asks of us. Paul then turns his attention to masters. And so in Ephesians 6 and verse 9, it says, And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening. And at first glance, one could easily look at this sentence and go like, What? That's it? Really? Twelve words. It's just because they're the masters. They get off easy. But it is not true. If you realize the enormity of what Paul is saying here, these, these words, masters do the same things to them, would have been completely shocking in those days. No one told masters how to treat their slaves. Culture and laws were completely slanted in the favor of masters. Remember that slaves was their property and nobody was telling them how to handle their property. And very few laws governed anything about slavery at the time. So for Paul to say these words, do the same to them, is a bold, bold sentence for him to say to masters. And once again shows his attitude against slavery. So what is, what is Paul saying? Do the same thing. Is he saying become the slave of your slave? It's not what he's saying. This is what Paul is saying. Masters. 
if you want respect from your slaves, respect them. If you want them to fear you, fear them. A godly fear. If you demand devotion and not eye service from them, be devoted to them. If you desire them to be honest and faithful, be honest and faithful to them. Do to them the, what you would like them to do to you. This is bold, Paul. You know what it is? Probably heard it. It's an application of the golden rule. Matthew 7 verse 12 says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And what is Paul saying? He says, Masters, you are not excluded from the golden rule. You may be their earthly masters, but you have a master yet. And so Paul also tells the masters, Stop threatening your slaves. Slaves often lived under threat the whole time of punishment if they did not perform up to a specific level. And Paul is saying to them, I, I don't want you to threaten them. I want you to model for them. If you want faithfulness, show faithfulness. Don't threaten to get faithfulness from them. Just like fathers should not misuse their position of authority to provoke their children to wrath in the same way Paul is saying, masters, don't use your position of authority to threaten your slaves. Rather, do to them what you want them to do to you. Here's the beautiful thing about this. Paul admits no privileged superiority in the personhood of masters over slaves. No superiority. And he says why. It says, knowing that both their master and yours in, is in heaven and there is no partiality in him. Masters, treat your slaves like you want them to treat you, knowing that ultimately you and your slave are both under the same authority of one master, namely God, the God in heaven. And in Him there is no partiality. He sees you as equal. He created you both in His image. He gave His life for you on the cross equally. He loves you the same. He will one day judge you without partiality. When you stand before God, Master, you will stand right next to your slave. You have the same Master as your slaves. So treat them like you want them to treat you. Translated for you and me for this work week. If you're an employer, if you're a supervisor, a manager, or anybody that has authority over other people, it means to use that authority in a way that is glorifying to Christ. To treat those people under you the way you want them to treat you. Do you want loyalty from your employees? Then give them loyalty. Do you want kindness and respect? Then give them kindness and respect. Because remember that you and your employee have one and the same master. And he judges without impartiality. 
I'll end with this. There's an amazing sentence in Ephesians 6 and verse 8 that we skipped over. It says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This is a promise, church. This is a promise that whatever good anyone does, God will reward that. It says, servants, if you're obedient to your earthly masters out of a reverent fear for God, rendering your service as if unto the Lord, not as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, you are doing good. And masters, if you do the same thing to them in reverent fear of God, treating your slaves, your servants in the way that you want them to treat you, you are doing good. And, and, and without partiality, they will both receive back, or the words that Peter uses, receive back from the Lord. If they do what God is telling servants and masters to do in this passage, they will be rewarded. How will they be rewarded? The passage in Colossians 3 on slaves and masters gives us the answer to this. Verse 22 says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Slaves, if you do good to your masters, here is a promise that's not an empty promise. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. Endure with patience hoping and looking forward with a secure hope that there is a reward in heaven waiting for you. Masters, if you could do good to your slaves, you will receive your reward in heaven. And this is true for you and me. This week, some of us in here have authority over us. Some have authority over others. Some are in the middle and have authority over some and are under authority of some. It's probably where most of us are. There is a promise that if we follow these principles and we serve those in authority over us as if we serve the Lord, as if we say, Lord, I'm doing this menial job. I'm following you. I do this because of you. And if we treat those under us with respect because we have the same master and the Bible says we will have our reward in heaven. It's good to know that even if we suffer this week, if you suffer under an unjust God, there is a reward, an, an unjust master, thank you. If you suffer under an unjust master, that there is a reward waiting for you that is sure we can bank on that. May God give us the grace this week 
to live and the next and the next to live according to the principles that he asked us in this portion of scripture pray with me please Lord, what you call us to do in your word is sometimes very difficult. And as I've struggled with this scripture over the last few days in preparation, I just realize how weak I am, how weak I am in doing what you ask of me to do. And so, Father, this day I pray for me and I pray for my brothers and sisters here with me. Will you empower us this week and the weeks to come, Lord, that we will honor you by working for our superiors as if working unto the Lord and by treating those under us as men and women who one day will stand beside us before the judgment seat. Lord, we want to do this. We want to honor you with our lives. Now help us to take these principles. Will you apply it in us? And will you give us the grace and the power to obey and to walk in this way? And then we look forward to our reward in heaven one day. Help us, we pray, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.